First John chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, we read, Love has been among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If we think about the nature and the working of love in our lives and in the lives of people around us, it doesn't take long to understand that love does something within us. A lot of times we don't think that way. Our our immediate thought is that love is just a feeling that we receive from somebody else. You know, you love me and I love you and it's just a feeling that feels good and we're thankful for it and we receive it all and isn't that great. But love, even on a very human level, has a transforming work in us. It doesn't leave us the same. It does something in us. Love has something that it wants to accomplish within us. Uh, You can just think of this as you take a look at some guy, you know, a single guy and he doesn't have a girlfriend or anything and he, well, he just lives his life like a slob. You know, he, his house is a mess, his car is a mess, he's a mess, and then suddenly he finds that girl, right? And all of a sudden he starts taking better care of himself, he cleans out all the fast food stuff from his car, and, and you know, all of a sudden the house looks at least a little bit neater, and you know, there's all this stuff going on in his life, and it's just a simple work because now he's in love and something's changing inside of him. Well, you know, it's the same way with the love of God in our lives. When we receive the love of God, it isn't just an idea God wants to impart to us some feeling that feels good. Although it is marvelous, it's just a marvelous feeling to be walking and living in the love of God, isn't it? But there's something far more than that. God's love has something that it wants to accomplish in us. And in verses 17 and 18, he talks about something that love wants to accomplish in us in eternity... And then something that love wants to accomplish in us right here and now. Well, the thing it wants to accomplish in us in eternity is in verse 17. Did you see it? Love has been among us in this. Okay, how do we know that love is among us? Verse 17, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Well, how do you know that God's love is doing a work in you? Well, you're going to know it one day that God's love has worked in you When you stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment and have boldness. Friends, if we think about that just for a moment, it's mind-blowing. To have boldness before the throne of God on the day of judgment. Now, a lot of people don't think there's going to be a day of judgment. A lot of people live their lives either just in the way that they live it or even thinking in their minds that there is not going to be a day when we have to give account before God. But I tell you, friends, the Bible says there is. And you and I might want to deny it, we might want to wish it away, we might want to pretend that it isn't there, but it's there for sure. I mean, just as certainly as God has ordained that there be a Memorial Day weekend in the year 1998, and here it is, so there's a day of judgment fixed on God's calendar, and it's just not a day that he hopes is going to happen, it's going to happen, that's all there is to it. And every man, woman, and child is going to stand before that throne one day. And on that day, we're going to know the love of God if we've received it right now. We're going to know it in a way that we never, ever have before. And that love is going to show its work in us by giving us boldness in the day of judgment. 
Now, I spoke about this last week, but I think the point is still valid and it's still pretty vivid on my mind, how I contrast this to how I am on a day of judgment right now. A couple weeks ago, okay, I was speeding on the freeway and I got a ticket, okay? All right, it sure, it happens to me too. All right, I, somebody said I should have pleaded that there was some ministerial emergency somewhere, or something like that. I don't think that quick enough, you know, and it just didn't happen. Believe me, if it would have worked, I would have tried it, and who knows, maybe I'll try it next time. But I got a ticket. Now, I'm not going to contest this ticket. Hey, I was guilty. I was speeding. What can I say? But on previous occasions, I've gotten a ticket, and I thought I was in the right. And so I go before the judge, and I'm there to contest it. And, you know, I don't think of myself as some, you know, lily-livered, you know, chicken. I'm, you know, I'm not Mr. Brave, but I'm somewhere in the middle there. And I also think that I speak pretty well before people. You know, yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid to speak before you all right now. But get me before a judge. And I'm like all nervous. I'm trembling. I feel sick to my stomach. I try to talk, and I'm hyperventilating a little bit. And what's worse, I get that kind of squeakiness in your voice. You know, your honor, I, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I'm so scared. And it's like, and I'm this way before some traffic judge. What's it going to be like when we stand before the eternal judge of all the universe? Now, some people think that when they stand before God on that day of judgment, some people think that they're going to ask him questions. Have you you ever heard that? Maybe you said it yourself sometime. Well, you know, when I see the man upstairs, I've got a thing or two to ask him. Boy, is that misguided. It really is. People just don't have any idea about what it's going to be like to stand before the throne of God on that day. You're not going to have any questions. You're going to be so overwhelmed with the glory and the majesty and the righteousness and the justice and the the incredible just glory of God that you're not going to have anything to say. Now, on that day, even though I can't have boldness before a little traffic judge right now, I can have boldness on the day of judgment. That's how great the work of God's love is in my life. See, it's not just a feeling that he gives me, his love. It's a love that's doing something in my life. Love has been among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Look at the end of the verse, because as he is, so are we in this world. How is Jesus Christ right now? He's glorified. He's perfect in righteousness. He's there in His glory. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven in all majesty and glory. And as Jesus is right now, so are we in the world. And I have a hard time believing that. I wouldn't believe it unless the Bible said it. The Bible says that we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That God's doing an eternal work of glory in us, in me. That in all of you were like earthen vessels that God's put an eternal priceless treasure in. And I don't understand it completely, but the Bible says it's so. And one day on that day of judgment, it's going to be revealed. That's how we can have this kind of boldness. So do you see the work that God's love does within us in light of eternity? You may say, that's fine, David. I need some help from God's love right now. What can I receive from God's love right now? It can transform your relationship with him. Look at verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Now, you know that feeling that you have standing before the traffic judge? You're not feeling really confident there. You're feeling, well, this guy could do anything to me. I don't know what to do. I hear the great story. There's a guy here at church. I'm not going to tell you who he is. I don't want to embarrass him. Well, I do want to embarrass him, but I won't say what the name is. He went to, he went to, to court once for, to, to see this traffic judge. 
And apparently this guy was just brutal. He was a hanging judge. And he was going to go there and fight the ticket. And when he goes up to the clerk's window and he says, I'm going to fight this ticket. I want to see the judge. The clerk asked him a question. It didn't hit him at the time. The clerk asked him, did you bring your toothbrush? It didn't really register in his mind. No, I didn't bring my toothbrush. I want to talk to the judge. Okay, talk to the judge. So he said, Your Honor, I'm not guilty. Da, 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 da. Judge pounds a gavel and said something like, You know, seven days in jail. And they carted him off to jail and put him in jail. And the guy had to call a friend of his who was in the sheriff's department, talk to the bailiff, and beg and plead. No, I'm so sorry. Let me just pay the fine. And they released him from jail. Well, you know, that's how it might be before an earthly judge. You don't know what to expect, right? You just have this feeling that, boy, any minute, they're just going to pound you. And, oh, my gosh, and you're nervous, and I don't know what's going to happen. Some people feel like that in their relationship with God. You know, he's got his eye on you, doesn't he? You know, he's been a little annoyed with you, hasn't he? You didn't pray enough this last week, and, boy, he's, boy, yeah, he's just waiting for you to mess up. And, boom, he puts something on you. A lot of people feel that way in their relationship with God. That's the kind of fear that perfect love casts out. God wants his love to do a work in you right now, a perfect work of love that will cast out fear in your life so you won't relate with God that way anymore, but you'll have a loving, trusting, abiding relationship with him and you'll receive his love and you'll love him in return and you'll have a sense of boldness and confidence. Friends, if you can have boldness on the day of judgment, then you can have some of that boldness right now before God. And not have a life that's marked by this fear or paranoia or torment before God right now. We know, we know that all the judgment that our sin ever deserved was put upon Jesus Christ. All on him. Some of you might feel that God's punishing you for your sin right now. Oh, you sinned this last week and something bad happened to you. God's punishing you. Now, friends, we believe that God has a correcting hand. And just like any loving parent, sometimes he needs to, you know, correct us along the way. But it's not for the purpose of judging us for our sin. Because all the judgment our sin ever deserved, past, present, and future, it was all put upon Jesus. There's nothing left for you to take upon yourself. It's all on Jesus. And so that's how we can know how much God loves us and that he's done judging us and how we can have a relationship with him filled with love instead of fear. God does not want you to fear him in the sense of this tormenting fear. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, Pastor David, I read the Bible, and I'm having a problem with what you're saying right now. Because when I read the Bible, I read things like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I hear that we should fear God, and that this is the beginning of all knowledge. How can you tell me in one place in the Bible that I should fear God? And then here in 1 John 4.18, it says that perfect love casts out fear. What is it? Am I supposed to fear the Lord or not fear Him? And my answer is yes. <laughs> Friends, there is an aspect of fear towards God that perfect love wants to eliminate in your life. And John is very specific about this, isn't he? In verse 18, he says, because fear involves torment. That's the kind of fear he's speaking about, that agonizing kind of fear that robs our soul of all joy, of all confidence before God. It's the fear that's the opposite of boldness in the day of judgment. That's the fear that God wants to wipe away from your life by his precious love. But there's another kind of fear that we need more of in our life, don't we? 
It's the kind of fear of God that expresses the reverence, the respect, where we respect his authority, where we respect who he is. And that kind of fear of God, that just honest respect for who he is, I think we need more of that in our lives and in the church in general. I think many of us are just far too casual in our relationship with God. Oh, yeah, Lord, hey, yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah, the big guy upstairs, sure, yeah, this or that. And it's just kind of this slapdash halfway, you know, whatever, God, sure. You know, you're my best bud. Give me five, God. (laughs) You know, that's a little too casual with the Lord. We need to have a proper reverence, a respect of God, but that's not the kind of fear that John's talking about. He's talking about the kind of torment, that kind of agonizing a kind of fear that robs our soul of all joy and confidence. Friends, if you look at verse 18 with me, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. When you receive this mature love relationship with God, it takes that fear out of your life. And then he says at the end of verse, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Have you been made perfect in the love of God? Now, when he says perfect, he doesn't mean perfect, like, you know, you're perfect, little Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. He means it in the sense of complete, mature. I want to know, are you mature in God's love? If you are, then you don't live with this crippling sense of fear and torment. You don't live with this sense of, of God's going to squash me, God's angry with me. God's always annoyed with me or irritated with me. Friends, no way. God wants your life to be filled with a love that is mature and that casts out that kind of tormenting fear. And when we come to verse 19, it's just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Those are some pretty precious words. Look at it closely. We love him... Because he first loved us. Friends, that's awesome. You know, all the time you hear me quote from Charles Spurgeon. I I just love the guy. He dead and buried for more than a hundred years now, but his uh, sermons, thousands of them published through the through the years, uh, just had an incredible impact on the world. He was a British preacher, it was preached in London more than a hundred years ago in a great church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And uh, he was a guy who preached the whole counsel of God's word. He wasn't just a guy who focused on one or two verses. In his thousands of sermons, I found he preached five sermons on these eight words. Five sermons. That's a lot. I mean, I haven't found many other places where he's preached five sermons on one verse. And this verse is just eight words. We love him because he first loved us. Do you see the first part of that verse? It's a simple declaration, isn't it? We love him. Isn't that something every Christian should be able to say? I'm not just talking about a few super spiritual Christians. You know, the real spiritual elite. They're the ones who can go around saying, I love Jesus. My friends, I believe that every Christian, every Christian should not be ashamed to say that they love Jesus Christ. Now, for some of us, maybe some of us men, it's like, well, that sounds kind of sissy or kind of weird. I mean, I love Jesus. What's that? Friends, I don't know. All I can say is that when you know who Jesus is and when you know what he's done for you, when you know that what he did on the cross, a tremendous cost to himself, when he gave everything for us, when he laid down his life to save me and to save you from eternal torment and separation and make a difference in our life right now, we shouldn't hesitate at all to say, I love Jesus. That's the declaration John makes. We love Jesus. And every Christian should be unafraid to proclaim that. 
Charles Spurgeon, he said, I cannot imagine a true man saying, I love Christ, but I don't want others to know I love him, lest they should laugh at me. That is a reason to be laughed at, or rather to be wept over. Afraid of being laughed at? Oh, sir, this is indeed a cowardly fear. Is that what holds you back? Are you afraid to tell other people that you love Jesus? Are you not included in this verse? Well, you cannot say we love him because he first loved us. Friends, look back the pages of history. Look back through the centuries. See Christians who have lived and died for Jesus Christ both in centuries ago and in the present time. Think of in the Sudan right now where Christians are literally being crucified for Jesus Christ. And as they're being crucified and hanging on those cross, they're not afraid to proclaim we love him. If you go back and think of a martyr being tied to the stake and there he is, his body's going up in flames. And at that very moment, he's not ashamed to say, I love Jesus Christ. And if you could walk through the catacombs of Rome, and if somehow those holy dead could arise right then and be given voice, they would say, we love him. And we were proud to live our lives and lay them down for Jesus Christ. Friends, the best and the bravest of men and women through the centuries, they've been all in this glorious company who are not afraid to say, we love Jesus. And I think each and every one of us, we want to say, put my name down with them. I want to stand with them. I'm not afraid to say, I love Jesus Christ. But can I just tell you very honestly, from my heart, sometimes it's hard. You know what makes it hard sometimes to say, I love Jesus Christ? It's because of the goofiness of the weirdness of some other people who say that they love Jesus Christ. (laughs) Oh, I turn on the TV sometimes, and I shouldn't do it, but I was watching the other night. And I was watching this Christian program... And uh, there was this lady on there, and I'm telling you guys, oh, she had purple hair. And I mean, not like a punker. I mean, I can understand that. I can understand that look, all right? I mean, she had this big purple hair. It was a color that is nowhere known in nature. And I had never seen somebody's hair that color before. And there she was saying how much she loved Jesus. And there's just part of me that says, listen, man, whatever this lady's for with the purple hair, I'm against it. And, you know, and if she says she loves Jesus, there's almost something inside me. I don't want to say I love Jesus too, but you know what? That's wrong in me. And if there's somebody around putting her down, I should be able to stand up and say like a real man and say, listen, you know, whatever else about her hair or her looks or whatever... Her makeup, good heavens. Whatever else about all of that, if you're going to put her down because she loves Jesus Christ, then put me down too because I'll stand right beside her on that point. And if you're going to heap scorn upon her, heap it upon me too. Because if she loves Jesus, I want you to know I love Jesus Christ also. And friends, this verse not only declares our love for Jesus, It tells us when he loved us. Did you notice this in verse 19? We love him because he first loved us. Now, some people imagine that Jesus loved us because he somehow knew that we would love him. That's why he loved us. He knew that I would love him. But friends, you know what? Jesus loved me before all that. Jesus loved me before I was ever created. Jesus loved me before my parents were ever created. 
Jesus loved me before the worlds were created, and my only existence was in the heart and in the mind of God. Way back then, Jesus loved me. You say, how could that be? Well, first of all, God knows the end from the beginning. He knew that there was going to be a me, that he knew that there was going to be a you before he created any of that, and he could love us before we were even created. How can that be, you say? Well, think of it, a young couple, they're married, they don't have children yet, and they're talking about all oh, the children they're going to have, and they love those children even before they're born, don't they? Now, if humans can do that, certainly God can do it. And he loved us first. And you know what that means? It means that God loved me and he loved you when we were still sinners. He didn't say, well, you know, when they come around to loving me, then I'm going to love them. No. He loved us when we were still sinners. And then we come to God, and He loves us first, and then we love Him back. You know, sometimes we tell other people, especially children, you know, how do you get to heaven? How can you be saved? And sometimes we tell them, oh, if you love Jesus, you'll get to heaven. Friends, that's not the answer biblically. We are not saved by loving Jesus. We're saved by trusting in Jesus and trusting in the payment for sins that he gave for us on the cross. We trust him first, then God does a work in our lives, and then we love him. We trust him before we love him. We trust him as guilty sinners needing pardon from God. And then he fills our hearts with a glorious, glorious love, but he loved you first. Remember those days when you didn't care anything about God? I don't know, maybe you were a good person, maybe you were a bad person. Maybe you were a mindless partier, and all you cared about was getting loaded and getting drunk and living life at that high-volume thing. Maybe that's all you cared about. God loved you then. Maybe you weren't like that. Maybe you were a good person, right? And, you know, you did all the good person things, but you know in your heart all you cared about was yourself. You know that. And sure, you did the good thing because that's what was expected of you. God loved you even then, even when you were that selfish, even when your whole life was all about you, even though you put on a good front about it. He loved you even then. And knowing that he loved you that much and how much he loved you, what does that do in us? It makes us love him. Our love is a response to his love for us. He initiates and we respond. We don't have to draw God to us. He draws us close to himself. Friends, his is the fountain of love. We're just a stream from it. We love him because he first loved us. Friends, do you want to love Jesus more? I think anybody here this morning who really loves Jesus, if there's anything you're aware of, you want to love him more. You know how you love him more? Well, let me tell you how you don't love him more. You don't love him more by going sitting somewhere and saying, I gotta love Jesus more, I gotta love Jesus more, I gotta love Jesus more. Maybe there's some of you here this morning and you think that probably just about everybody in this room loves Jesus more than you do. Maybe during the time of worship, you know what? It, it, whatever was going on, it wasn't hitting you. You know, it's like, well, all these people kind of seem into it. Some people are closing their eyes, some people are raising their hands, and you're like, I don't know what's going on, but this isn't hitting me. Maybe it's like that for you every week. Maybe you come here and you think, 
you know what? Everybody here is kind of tied into something but me. I must not love God very much. I must not care about him very much. And you know what? The devil comes in and he says something to you. He says, you know what? You probably don't love God very much. And that's why he doesn't love you very much. You know what? Look at all these people. They love the Lord a lot more than you do. And God loves them a lot more than he loves you. But you see what you've just done? You see the deception you've just believed? You've believed that God's love for you is dependent on your love for him when it's just the opposite. Anything the devil can do to make you think that God loves you less will make you love him less. The more you know of his love, the more you receive of his love, the more you walk in his love, the more his love will bring forth love back towards him. Spurgeon said, love believed is the mother of love returned. So we shouldn't go around just trying to make ourselves love God and love him and love him. No, forget about your love to him. Just consider his love to you. Think about how much he loves you. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Get your eyes off yourself. Put them on Jesus Christ. And you know what? All of a sudden, you'll find this love arising in your heart. You'll see a greater depth of love, a greater passion of love in your life. You are never going to love Jesus Christ more by going around beating yourself up for how little you love him. That's not God's plan for your life. You know how you come to love anybody more? You get to know them better. You know them better you love them more. If it's true on a human level, how much more with God? You know him more, you will love him more. And one last thing from verse 19, though I could go on and on. Spurgeon preached five sermons on this, right? He says, we love him because he first loved us. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that if he first loved us, then he still loves us. I mean, couldn't we say he first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and on into infinity? That's how much he loved us. He loved us again and again and again. Friends, if he first loved us, then it's true that he loves us now. I want to know if you believe it, if you really believe it. This is what Spurgeon said. He said, oh, if you really do believe that he loved you so, sit down and turn the subject over in your mind and say to yourself, Jesus loves me. Jesus chose me. Jesus redeemed me. Jesus called me. Jesus has pardoned me. Jesus has taken me into union with himself. Friends, if you'll just embrace and receive and meditate on the great love God has for you, I'll tell you, the promise is true. You're going to love him because he first loved you. That's a glorious part, isn't it? Now let's go to verse 20 and 21. John's just not going to let us walk around in this, you know, receive love from the Lord club. Because his love does something in us, right? And he's going to call us on it right now, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Wow. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Maybe I can help you understand what it means. You know, if you do some very in-depth research in the original Greek language, 
and carefully go out and figure out every word and the verb tenses and the vocabulary and check out the different manuscripts, let me kind of give you a paraphrase and let you know exactly what John means here. He means, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's what he means. It's just right there, isn't it? There's nothing to figure out. There's nothing. It's right there in front of us. You and I could all day long say, oh yeah, God loves me. I love him. Yes, don't we all love each other so much? But if I'm not showing love towards my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, then my claim to love God is a lie. He goes on to say in verse 20, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You know, it's often easier for someone to proclaim their love for God because that's more of a private relationship with an invisible God. You can't measure the love I have for God in my heart, right? There's no, like, spiritual Geiger counter that can measure it. But friends, John rightly insists that our claim of loving God is false if we don't also love our brother. And that's a love that can be seen. So if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. By this crucial measure, Jesus said that all other people could see whether or not we are really followers of him. Do you realize what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35? He said, by this we'll all know that you are my disciples. By this we'll all know that you're my disciples by the kind of cars you drive by the kind of clothes you wear, by the kind of buildings you meet in. No, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Friends, that's what God is looking for us. Now, don't go around thinking that you earn the love of God, that you earn the right to be a follower of Jesus because you love other people. That's not the idea one bit. If you've received his love into your life, It's done something, and you have a love for other people that you didn't have before. It's not perfected in you. You still need to grow in it, but that love is there. And might I add another thing? It's there in a commandment. Did you see verse 21? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. It's a commandment. Now, that's a word that people don't like to use today, command. Years ago, I heard that Ted Turner, don't get me started on Ted Turner. (laughs) Guy was voted humanist of the year, and he walks around thinking that people who follow Jesus Christ are a bunch of weakling losers. And it's just annoying to me. I love to see the Atlanta Braves get beat any chance I can. The guy (laughs) owns that team. It's just, anyway, don't get me started on that, all right? Anyway, Ted Turner is so arrogant as to think, he actually suggested this. Let's do away with the Ten Commandments. And he said, let's come up with the Ten Voluntary Initiatives. Come on. you imagine Moses coming down from Mount Sinai saying, God gave me something? It's the Ten Voluntary Initiatives. (laughs) Well, can I say that I think that a guy like Ted Turner, all he has the right to give me or you or anybody is Voluntary Initiatives. But if there's a God in heaven who created us and that we answer to, he has the right to command us to do certain things. And he commands us to love one another. 
Friends, if he commands us, that tells me that there's something in there connected to my choice. Sometimes we act as if love is just a feeling. Look, do I love you or do I not love you? Well, I don't know. If I feel it, then I love you. If I don't feel it, then I don't love you. Now, I've even had people say, well, listen, I'm not going to act loving towards them. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And I don't feel very loving towards them. Well, friends, you know what? You're not being a hypocrite. You're being obedient. The Bible commands us to love. You say, well, how can I love somebody when I don't feel any feelings of love towards them? They're my enemy. I don't like them. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what you do for your enemies. You pray for them and you love them. If there's somebody in your life that's an enemy, right now, today, if you can do nothing else, let's say you can't go to them and reconcile them. Just, I don't know, maybe you're just too proud or too stubborn. I don't know. Maybe you won't do that. Maybe you won't reconcile. Maybe you won't humble yourself. Maybe you won't get things right with them. Maybe you won't do any of that. Can I tell you that you should at least do this? You should at least say, I'm going to start praying for them. And I don't mean one of those kind of prayers from the Psalms. You know, where David prays like, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. I don't mean one of those kind of prayers. I mean, Lord, um, bless this person and bless what they're doing in their life and find a way to draw us closer together again. You pray for that person. That's doing something good for them. That's demonstrating love towards them. And if you'll do that, God will do a work in your life because you've made a decision to love them. And God will bless that commitment. He'll bless that desire to love them because it says there in verse 21, did you read it? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should kind of, if he feels like it, love his brother also. No, no, no. He who loves God must love his brother also. So the excuse, I just can't love that person, or any other such excuse, it's invalid. If we're born of him, if we're abiding in him, the resources for love are in us. I'm not saying that it's easy. Matter of fact, you know how this works in your life, doesn't it? Look, I know of you. You guys are a great bunch of people. And, and you love one another, and you're like me. You say, you know what? I love everybody, except for those two or three people. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it? You get along great with everybody, no problem. And what you're doing is you're judging that love by the everybody you get along with instead of those few difficult people. Do you think God cares about how you treat those few difficult people? Yeah, he does. And so he says, I want you to love them because... Those are the ones who are hard to love, and that's where my glory is going to be shown within you. Now let me add an important point onto this, because sometimes many people get confused and stumbled at this very point. They say, David, listen, you don't understand. Listen, I can love this person, I can pray for them, I can get things right with them, but David, just honestly, honestly, I don't want them to be my best friend. God never said you had to have them for your best friend. That's not what the Lord says. Listen, you have to love them. And that means treating them with kindness and respect, just as Jesus would. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be your best friend. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to be in that circle. But it doesn't mean you have the right to not show love towards them. And sometimes love means, well, you know, 
I don't want to go spend that week vacation with you. But let's go out and have a cup of coffee. God will show you how to show his love. One final point here. Friends, I think we learn how to love God by loving other people. How do you love God? You know, do you just kind of shoot up love beams towards him in heaven or something? But didn't Jesus say, Whatsoever you've done to the least of my brethren, that you've done unto me. I'll tell you something else Jesus said. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that when you're bringing a gift and offering to God, and when you're coming up and going to lay it down before God, and when you remember that there's something not right between you and your brother, that it's more important for you to go and get it right with your brother than it is for you to make that gift. I mean, think about it. Think about somebody bringing forth a a million-dollar gift. And let's say they're doing it with totally the right heart. You know, they're doing it anonymously. They're not there to make a name for themselves, this or that. But there they are. They've got that million-dollar check in their hand. And they're going to go bring it before God. And they're just trembling. Oh, God, I'm doing such a great work for you. This is going to be great. And right before they're going to bring it and give it, they remember something's not right with another brother or sister. You know what God would say to that person? God would say, I've got something greater for you to do than give a million dollars. I want you to go get it right between that brother or sister. Isn't that great? Isn't that cool to know that right now this morning you can do something greater before God than give a million dollars? You can get something right between you and another brother and sister. I don't know what that's going to entail. Maybe you need to talk to them. Maybe you need to pray with them. Maybe you need to humble yourself. Maybe you need to start writing them a letter. Maybe you just need to release the bitterness in your heart towards them. Maybe you just need to pray for them. I don't know. The Holy Spirit will tell you. Friends, in this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I think God's love has a work to do in us in eternity at the day of judgment, right? Right now in us in casting out fear and right now in us among one another by making us love one another. It's a big work. We better pray and ask God to do it in our lives. Father, we are really at a end of ourselves when it comes to a text like this because we realize that it's asking something of us that is so much greater than we can work up in ourselves. We can only live this way as you do it in us, God. So we come before you. And Lord, more than we ask to give out your love first, we say just help us to receive it, Lord. To receive your transforming love and then to go out and to love others and to walk in that kind of love and not in the fear that you have for us. Do this work in us, Lord, and help us to love you and to love others more after receiving this great love of yours. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.